Hello, and welcome to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleague, Craig, along with our special guest, Sunshine Cavaluzzi. Every May, students gear up for the advanced placement exams, a culmination of semesters of hard work, studying, preparation, and dedication, so that they can achieve credit that they can then apply toward their college and university degrees. In this episode, we will be focusing on the AP U.S. government exam, which students will be taking on Monday, May 2nd. We'll talk about changes in the format of the test due to the impact of the pandemic over the last two years. We'll review some topics that students might encounter on the exam, and we'll share ready-to-go resources that you can use with your students as you review key concepts and ideas. We'll also be previewing our upcoming Cram for the Exam live call-in program, which will air on C-SPAN on April 30th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's the perfect opportunity for students to connect with our expert guest hosts to have their questions answered as they prepare and give shout-outs to their school. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, thank you for joining us today for a discussion on the Advanced Placement U.S. Government and Politics exam as teachers and students begin to make final preparations ahead of the exam on May 2nd. As you mentioned, Zach, in this episode, we'll feature resources that teachers can use with their students, talk about tips to prepare for the upcoming exam, and discuss how te- students and teachers can participate in our live call-in program on C-SPAN on Saturday, April 30th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Before we introduce today's guest, I did want to briefly mention the history of Cram for the Exam, uh, which first aired 13 years ago back in 2009. It was the brainchild of two teachers, Andy Kaneen and Dan Larson from Adelaide Stevenson High School just outside of Chicago. And every year, the week ahead of the APUS government exam, they would fly themselves out on their own dime to D.C. so as to visit with their former students who are now clerking for judges and justices or working at the White House or working for lawmakers on Capitol Hill. And the Saturday before they would fly home, they would host an hour-long program on C-SPAN to help students prepare for the exam. I want to say a sincere thank you to Andy and Dan for all of the effort that went into building the program into what it has become and helping countless students along the way to prepare for the exam and uh, and ace those exams too. You guys will certainly be missed. Looking ahead to the uh, 2022 program, we are joined today by former C-SPAN fellow and current AP government teacher, Sunshine Cavaluzzi. Sunshine teaches at El Dorado High School in Placentia, California, and will be one of the guest hosts for this year's Cram for the Exam program. We're thrilled to have you back in D.C. and in the office today, uh, Sunshine. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Sunshine, um, having just met you for the first mm-hmm. time just a few minutes ago, um, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your professional experiences, background, and a little bit about your co-host, Shoshana Adams, as well? 
Absolutely. So, so I'm Sunshine Cavaluzzi, first-time participant, long-time fan of C-SPAN Classroom and all that it offers to both students and teachers, really across all social science disciplines, as well as a few other assorted and sundry academic disciplines as well. It's my great pleasure and privilege to be a social science teacher, law academy coordinator, and mock trial coach at El Dorado High School, Go Golden Hawks, in Placentia, California, which is in Orange County. It's also my alma mater. I'm one of uh, 19 alumni staff members and 38 uh, teachers who are also parents of students at the school. So it's the biggest small town in America. And I've taught government every semester that I've taught. I've taught AP government for the past, I think this is year 14, although I definitely could be fact-checked on that. And I've also taught economics um, and a few social science electives along the way. And my co-host, Shoshana Adams, has been one of my best friends in the known universe since we first met as little baby freshmen at UC San Diego the very first week of school in September of 1993 and bonded over our shared love of all things social science and words and wordplay and a million other things. And we were uh, both history majors and then I also had a major in political science. And so we took classes together and just grew that love of social science throughout our time in school and then both went on to be social science teachers. So Shoshana also teaches AP Gov as well as assorted other social science classes. And she's an instructional coach at Valhalla High School in San Diego. And since we've both taught the same thing, we've continued just like we did when we were college students to learn and grow together to share resources and to help each other be better versions of ourselves inside and outside the classroom. And we're super excited about this new adventure of co-hosting Cram for the Exam. That's awesome. We're glad to have you on board. Um, So could you talk about the structure of the exam this year, Um, some of the changes that may have occurred over the last two years considering COVID and uh, virtual learning, maybe what students can expect with the exam this year? Absolutely. So a few of the features uh, that are interesting, I would say, about the AP Gov exam is that there are four different free response prompts and four different kinds of writing, which isn't necessarily consistent with other social science exams where there may be one or two different kinds of writing. Now, the good news is one of them, the argumentative essay, is very familiar if you've taken any AP social science class before. The format's similar. How you develop it is similar. The other three are all particular kinds of writing, the concept application question, the SCOTUS comparison question, and the quantitative exploration or quantitative analysis, excuse me, question. So the good news about that is we do have on C-SPAN Classroom specialized lessons to help you with each of those kinds of writing along with sample prompts for you. But in terms of what's different this year, depending on where you are in the United States and what your last two years were like, you may have never as a student taken a paper and pencil or paper and pen AP social science exam before since, of course, two years ago, all of the exams were online and last year schools had the option of the conventional exam versus the online exam. And consequently, it might you might be facing the hurdle of dealing with the format of the exam and also remembering how do you effectively take an exam with paper and pencil. So we'll be chatting a little bit about that and what are some strategic approaches that you can take to that. So it definitely sounds like like you're an expert in, in, in the whole AP government uh, process, Sunshine, with from the test, from the changes. You said you'd um, taught AP classes now for 14 years. Um, but as an added note, you also served as a C-SPAN classroom teacher fellow, I think you said in 2017, correct? correct. Um, and during that time, you developed a significant portion of our instructional resources that support our AP government topics. So 
Um, to what you said about the great C-SPAN uh, classroom resources that exist, what are some of the benefits of using these resources with students, including when you review for the AP Gov exam? Sure. So outside of getting to spend time with my extraordinary students, which is a gift every day, one of the absolute best things that I've ever gotten to do as a teacher was that C-SPAN fellow program. And I definitely would encourage any teachers who are listening right now to consider applying, if not this summer, then in years to come. Because as professional development goes, it was as good as it gets. Getting to have the experience of really immersing myself in the resources and to create stuff that was useful for my classroom and hopefully for other teachers as well was, again, that was rock star gold-plated professional development for sure. But what was important to me in creating was exactly that. What would I use? What do I think would be useful to my students? And so I think the that was always my guiding force. And the resources that have continued to be created by other people and that were created before I started by other people also all serve that need. And the best thing about the approach I think for a lot of students is it's very targeted. So whatever it is that you are specifically struggling with, you can pop right onto the homepage and use the search bar and search Federalist 78, Tinker v. Des Moines, dual federalism, poll taxes, and something or probably a lot of some things will pop up that will give you guided help in that particular area. A lot of the resources that I created include in the bottom... Uh, what's called AP Gov questions to consider. So they're specifically targeted for AP students, although they're also meant to be accessible to anyone who just wants to know a little bit about government, whether you're a student or someone who just tuned into the Supreme Court confirmation hearings on C-SPAN and said, wait, what does that word mean? Or what is that thing that they're asking Judge Jackson, now Justice Jackson, about? But with those AP questions to consider, it takes it from this entry-level access to the term or the concept or the document or the case and says, now, how might this look in AP scholarship? What connections might you need to draw or how might you need to apply it? So I think there are broad resources like the key terms, each of the kinds of writing, as I mentioned, the documents and the cases all is an aggregate, but then there are also very specific resources for all sorts of different terms. And you don't even have to use the search bar because they've also been collected onto one page that's AP Gov key terms, which you can find from the home site. And you can then hyperlink from whatever term you are interested in. And it's organized alphabetically as to ease the facility of you actually finding the resource. That's awesome. Thank you. That's a good segue, too. So you and Shoshana have uh, selected a a few resources that you use with your students to help them prepare. So we'll get your thoughts on this first one in a a minute. But um, to start us off, we've got Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, discussing Federalist 78. And of course, that's one of the required foundational documents for the AP Gov course. So let's take a listen. Hamilton, like Madison, was one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, which were the documents that were issued anonymously under the pseudonym Publius to give the arguments for and against ratification of the Constitution after it was proposed. And Hamilton had many great contributions in the Federalist Papers, not least of which was his theory of why it's okay for courts to strike down unconstitutional laws. So Federalist 78, which Hamilton wrote, says it contains the whole philosophy of American government in a few paragraphs. It says that The will of we, the people of the United States, is represented by the Constitution because of the special ratification procedure that gave it um, the will of the force of law. Hamilton says, imagine a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of legislatures represented by ordinary statutes 
in the case of this conflict, it's the obligation of judges to favor the will of the sovereign to that of the agent. The uh, basically the uh, master has to be preferred to the servant because legislatures are servants of the masters who are we, the people. And that's why, according to Hamilton, it's not undemocratic for courts to strike down unconstitutional laws when they set aside a law passed by the legislature that clashes with the Constitution. They're favoring the will of the people over that, the will of the legislatures. A brilliant theory, like so much of what Hamilton uh, did. So, Sunshine, just expanding on what Jeff Rosen uh, discussed in that first clip, what specifically do students need to know about Federalist 78 for the exam? Sure. So for Federalist 78, like for all four of the required Federalist papers, which are 10, 51, 70, and 78, the big question is what are a couple of big takeaways? Because there are two ways that you might be asked to be conversant with the Federalist papers on the AP exam. You might need to identify or apply something in a multiple choice question, in which case, obviously, the answer is already on the page. You just need to narrow down which one it is. Or it can be a bullet as an option in the argumentative essay. So the argumentative essay gives you a stem or a prompt or what the essay is about. And then underneath that, there are three bullets. You have to create a thesis that establishes a line of argument and response to the prompt. And that thesis has to be supported by two pieces of evidence. One of the pieces of evidence has to be on the list. And the other one can be anything else in the known gov universe that directly, again, addresses the prompt. So Federalist 78 most definitely might be a document that appears on that bulleted list, or it also is a really useful go-to for a lot of different prompts where it might be valuable as the second piece of evidence that's not from the list. So for all of the Federalist papers, that's the question. How could I use this? What prompts could I respond to or what arguments could I defend with this? What are the two or three or four really key ideas? And then my recommendation to my students is always also memorize a quick, easy quote from that Federalist paper that is a great takeaway to anything else. So with Federalist 78 specifically, a couple of those big ideas or big areas, one is very much the defense of the independent judiciary and specifically the judiciary that has a life term, this permanent tenure in office, as it's uh, indicated in the document itself. And obviously the concern about that for a group of founding fathers and assorted and sundry citizens who had just broken away from a monarchy and won against all odds our independence. Are we really going to go back to a time where we just give people a life term? And of course, this paper is written to defend that. And so these arguments laid out for why is it okay that we give justices this life term? are really important. And obviously, that's the idea that it has neither force nor will, which is the language in the document that the judiciary can only interpret, which leads really nicely to one of the other pullouts that this is the foundation for judicial review, because there's a whole extended argument in the document about what the justices are actually going to do, which is, of course, to review the Constitution and make sure the Constitution reigns supreme, even if choosing the Constitution over, say, a piece of legislation is unpopular, which sets up the rule of law, which is another one of the key concepts for the course that's outlined and defended in Fed 78. And then the last thing is the notion of popular sovereignty, because there is this extended discussion that the will of the people needs to be supreme and superior, which is, of course, presented both as to assuage the fears of we're giving these justices the life term, it's okay because their job is to represent your will, and also to indicate why, what it, what's our why? 
as a nation, especially as a newly emergent nation, that we are serving the needs of the people under the umbrella of what the Constitution permits. So those would be the the general approach. How do I use any Federalist paper? And then specifically, what am I looking for in this Federalist paper? And as hopefully you can see, those are all sorts of different kinds of prompts that you might be asked that you could use Fed 78 as evidence for whether it's on your bulleted list or not. So as we prepared for this episode, your co-host for the program, Shoshana, mentioned Tinker v. Des Moines being a landmark case that students need to review for the AP Gov exam. Uh, Specifically, she discussed one clip that she likes to use with her students, which was of John Tinker talking about the impetus of the case, namely wearing a black armband to protest the Vietnam War. Um, And that was part of our landmark cases series, which you can find uh, just by searching on our uh, C-SPAN classroom website. Uh, But uh, the clip we're about to play... Uh, includes Walter Cronkite and Mary Beth Tinker discussing the case itself. So we're going to listen as Walter Cronkite announces the Tinker decision on the evening news. The Supreme Court today endorsed the right of student protest so long as the protest does not disrupt order or interfere with the rights of others. But a dissenting justice, Hugo Black, said the ruling begins a revolutionary era of permissiveness fostered by the judiciary. The 7-2 decision upheld the right of three Des Moines teenagers to wear black anti-war armbands to high school. The court said students do not leave their freedoms of speech and expression at the school door. Well, that's one way that the country found out about the decision. How did your family find out about it? I think someone called my school and I came home and I didn't have any idea how important this ruling was going to be, either for my life or for the country. Um, it took many years till it really, you know, hit me how important it was. One of the first times was when I was in nursing school some years later, and the case was in my nursing school book. So, Sunshine, can you briefly describe the case and why AP Gov students need to learn about it, aside from just that it might be on the test? <laughs> Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, it involved a protest of the Vietnam War, and specifically the wearing of a black armband with a peace sign on it. And that was done by the Tinker siblings, as well as a group of their friends, just after the school board had passed a rule effectively banning them from doing it. And it definitely is worth a dive into the classroom website to listen to John Tinker and Mary Beth talking about the day itself. They really do such an amazing job 50 years later of bringing it to life. And students need to learn about this because this is the why for them of how you can still express yourself at school. Because although the Supreme Court had dealt with a few precedent cases about students' rights in schools. In Tinker, they expressly articulate that neither teachers nor students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. And in this day and age right now, as we are seeing students expressing views about all sorts of things, and we're having all sorts of national conversations about what it is and is inappropriate for teachers to say and do in class, as well as students, for you to understand, right, as what I tell my students all the time is history doesn't begin when you start paying attention to it. The story of our country and our world is so much bigger and longer than that. And understanding where we fit into that context and how everything that happens to us builds on what has happened and decided before and how you're joined with your grandparents as agents of protest and the youth voice and trying to create change and move ourselves toward a better world as you understand that term is an extraordinary thing. You're not alone. You're not the first people to ever do this. You're doing it differently, but you're not the first people. And again, you are standing on the shoulders of people like your grandparents who are protesting and going to this place to do it. So that's the case is about what can you and can't you 
do at school to protest. And it's the Supreme Court, as I said, articulating that students do retain constitutional rights. And they specifically in this decision are talking about free speech and expression. But this has become this benchmark that's later used for questions like, well, what about searches at school, for instance? What about equal protection in schools? Although equal protection was decided a little more by Brown earlier, taking it together, these questions of what do you still get to do and what do you not get to do? And of course, this just came up last year in the famous Snapchat F-bomb cheerleader case, which is the kind of thing I have to imagine nobody during their, let's say, Supreme Court confirmation hearings was asked about. Well, do you think, especially not in, let's say, the 1980s when Justice Thomas is being confirmed, what do you think about free speech and expression for to Snapchat. And because so much of our discussion about free speech and expression now does involve the internet, we can forget sometimes that free speech and expression has taken all sorts of different forms. And the Supreme Court did outline in Tinker this notion of speech can't be punished unless it creates a substantial and material disruption to the school environment. And that ties into all sorts of really interesting other cases like Morse v. Frederick, the famed Bong Hits for Jesus case, like Bethel v. Frazier, the most profane student council nomination speech of all time, as well as other things. What creates a material and substantial disruption? What's on school campus? What's off campus? So in the Snapchat case, it was speech at the Cocoa Hut, not on campus. And so was it school speech? So we need to learn about Tinker because Tinker is the foundation on which all these other decisions were built. And we need to learn about it because as students who might want to express your views on campus, knowing what you can and can't do is a pretty good place to start. Well, and delving in just a little bit more into the uh, Tinker v. Des Moines case, you mentioned the concept of expressing views, right? And and all the, all the different questions are involved in Supreme Court confirmation hearings and such. But in this particular clip, Walter Cronkite mentioned that Hugo Black wrote a dissent Mm -hmm. for Tinker v. Des Moines. Uh, So for this case in particular, was that dissent important to know? And more generally, are judicial dissents important for the AP exam? Sure. Not to overwhelm our students who are already looking at 15 key cases that are pretty weighty to read. Some justices write in a way that I would say is easier to conceptualize quickly. And others are a little bit more work. That's where you earn the advanced in advanced placement. And so they saying, wait, I have to learn the majority opinion and I also have to learn the dissent. I would say you don't need granular familiarity with the dissent, but it is important to know because if a justice cares enough to not just not vote with the majority, but actually to write a dissent explaining the reasoning, This justice feels pretty strongly about that. And also, certainly, this justice is hoping that that dissent is going to be used as the basis either for a future majority opinion overturning this particular case or by the lower courts in the way they interpret that decision. So in this case... Justice Black's dissent is important because obviously this isn't in 1969, the last time we're considering the question of what can and can't students stay in school. As I've referenced, we've been asking that question ever since. And also the Supreme Court hasn't taken too many student free speech cases since then. And so this notion that this dissent is lingering out there and the Supreme Court hasn't, although they've heard some and they're always interesting cases, they haven't heard very many, means the lower courts are still using Tinker as the gold standard to try to figure out what is and isn't permissible. And so Black's dissent out there gives a suggestion to a judge, well, maybe there's a different way to look at it. And specifically in that case, what Black is saying is, we can't let these kids just run loose. They'll never obey a rule again if we tell them they can protest in schools. And so that's interesting, both as a possibility for a future lower court judge and interpretation, but also as kids 
to contemplate this is another view of that time. And because so many of our AP classes and college scholarship, which is what AP is supposed to be the equivalent of, looks at that idea of continuity and change over time. How do we still see that struggle today between we're asking students to grow into their voice as speakers, but we're also asking them to be compliant rule followers. And that's not just in Tinker. We can look back to West Virginia v. Barnett, which is about Jehovah's Witnesses saluting the flag in school. And in that case, Justice Frankfurter writes a dissent that's actually longer than the majority opinion. So we see, again, this constant struggle between what can we allow students to do and how much do we need to preserve school authority slash parental authority slash community authority. It's just an incredibly interesting dynamic. And that underlies so much of our civil rights and civil liberties is that balance between the right to swing your fist and the other man's nose, or in this case, the school's nose. Excellent. Yeah. So another clip, and this one's from Selma, Alabama, looking at voting rights. Here we have uh, National Historic Trail Park Guide April Bourbon, and she's talking about literacy tests and poll taxes. Now, let's say on some whim that I have an extra dollar left over and I go down to this courthouse right here, Dallas County Courthouse, and I show up saying that I would like to register to vote. So I would actually go up to the uh, county registrar. I would have my poll tax ready. Now, if Mr. Colonel, let's call him that, he's going to take my poll tax for that year, but he's also going to administer a literacy test, which would be another type of barrier that African-Americans faced when attempting to register to vote. And that literacy test could take many forms. It could be how many counties are there in Alabama, to which I would say 67. Now, he might ask me to name every probate judge in the county or in the entire state of Alabama. So now I'm going to have to try to scramble to find the names of all of these uh, probate judges who are in charge of enforcing the laws of this or these particular counties throughout the state. Now, there wasn't any Google. There wasn't any type of Wikipedia that would tell me this information in 1965. So it's going to be pretty difficult for me to do that. So that was just one form a literacy test could take. It could be in the form of a question, as in how many uh, gallons flow through the Alabama River. He could ask me how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. Or he could give me a political literacy test that would be about 68 questions long. Um, I had 38 minutes to complete this test, and this was done in more formal settings. So if you had a larger group of folks who were coming to take it, whereas for a white patron who's coming in to register to vote, they might pay their poll tax and only have to answer 20 of those questions, whereas an African-American might have to answer all 68. So Sunshine, how does this one fit into the APGov curriculum, and how do you teach about literacy tests and poll taxes? Certainly. So it fits in in a couple of different places. Obviously, this is this ongoing question of civil rights, of opportunities to vote and that guarantee in the Constitution and the AP Gov's expectation that our students are conversant with the Constitution and what it does and doesn't guarantee and what that has looked like over time in application. But also because two of the units, political participation and political ideologies and beliefs specifically look at how does the average citizen interact with participatory democracy. These attempts to limit access to participatory democracy become very relevant and there is an expectation that our students know about that. As well, the Voting Rights Act is one of the landmark pieces of legislation that makes a common appearance on the AP exam and understanding how in many ways the drive for the Voting Rights Act was driven by attempts to limit suffrage are important. And then back to that idea of continuity and change over time, that we're still having conversations about who can vote and under what circumstances and how do we register voters and how do we count votes. Again, this sense we didn't just get here, that we're participants in a much longer and much more woven and complex narrative. 
So those are all the ways it might come up in class. And then how I teach about literacy tests and poll taxes is, first of all, I love this clip because I think it's such a great job and such a great hat tip to our park rangers who are out there just knowing all this stuff about government and making it really, really accessible to anyone who might want to come in and visit. And I think that explanation of poll taxes, especially in the full clip, is just as spot on as it gets. With the literacy tests, we actually look at one. And look at all of the questions and think about how overwhelming it would be and how frustrating it would be to show up and see that and know that you are literate, that you are a citizen, that you should be entitled to vote, and that the deck is so stacked against you that you have a question like spell forwards, comma, backwards, which you can answer in three ways. And of course, at least that we've found already and any one of those three ways is wrong. And what does that do? Not just in terms of limiting your suffrage, but what does that do to you as an activist? How does it maybe fuel you or frustrate you as a participant in your democracy, which links to obviously other bigger, broader concepts, both of the course and that we all should know. And that's one thing I think when we have conversations like this, a lot of the focus tends to be on What do you need to do to be ready for the test? And certainly I want all of our students to feel prepared to take and succeed on the exam. But I also am cognizant a lot that this might be the only government class they ever take, depending on what they go on to major in, especially because I hope they will pass the exam and get college credit for this course. So you might never take government again, but you're going to be a voter forever. You're going to be a juror forever. You're going to be a citizen and a participant in our democracy forever. So what do I want you to know? What do I want to sort of pack in your figurative suitcase as I send you off to belong to the world? What do all of us need to know so that we can better use our voices to enrich the space that we share? Turning now to a topic of current and continued debate, or I guess as AP would call continuity and change, uh, we'll hear from Christian Science Monitor correspondent Lee Lawrence about two Supreme Court cases that deal with school prayer. Let's start off by just looking at the history. It was 50 years ago that the Supreme Court essentially banned prayer. What were those decisions? Well, the, the two decisions were in 1962 and in 1963. And what they did was they banned school-sponsored prayer, not the actual action of praying in school. And so the first one was brought in, uh, had started in New York with the parents of about 10 children. And they, there they were, the objection was that the school, their school district imposed a, a morning prayer. And in fact, by the time it reached the Supreme Court, it was no longer imposed. It was not mandatory, but the, the, there was a prayer that was a generic prayer to God to bless uh, the parents, teachers, the country, etc. And then in 1963, there was another case, Abington um, in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. And there, the, the issue was that the school district had a Bible reading that was broadcast over the intercom. And if it couldn't be on the intercom, then the teacher led it. And that was followed by the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and a family, the Shemps, brought suit saying that that was imposing a prayer. Even though it was not mandatory, the, child, the parents could have asked for the child to be excused. The, the courts ruled that, in fact, it was, it was indirectly coercive to have these kinds of uh, school-sponsored and therefore state-sponsored prayers and religious activities in public schools. Now, the decisions did make the, the point... Yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, go, go, please continue. Oh, uh, Okay, the decisions made the point that, in fact, it was, it was perfectly fine to, to study about religion and to study world religions and to study about the Bible and the influences of, 
that the Bible had had on civilization, philosophy, and culture, and art. So it wasn't a ban on any kind of talk of religion or uh, uh, study of religion. And in fact, the only people who could not be praying publicly were the, were the state employees, were the, were the school administrators and the school teachers. They could not impose a prayer or lead a prayer. So, Sunshine, the speaker references two court cases in the clip, specifically Engel v. Vital and Abington v. Shemp. Uh, what do students need to know about the circumstances surrounding and the decision in each case? Sure. So the Engel decision is one of our 15 key cases. So students do need to be a little bit more conversant with that. Cases like Abington are really useful. And I'm sure everybody who's listening has teachers who was who a student who has teachers who have given them a whole bunch of extra courses that aren't on the 15. Because the SCOTUS comparison question, which, as I mentioned, is one of the kinds of writing, asks students to compare a case that isn't one of the 15. And so it gives them the case and a little excerpt from it with one that is one of the 15. And so the more you know about other cases, the better your odds are that that chosen case that's not from the list is going to be one you actually know a little bit about. And in this case, as Lee Lawrence discussed on the clip, it's another really landmark case about what, how do we have religion in schools? And it's important because we're constantly figuring this out because again, this gets back to this balancing test. And in this case, the push and pull between the two different clauses pertaining to freedom of religion, the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. So there's no question, as was referenced in the clip, that students can be faithful in school, can express their beliefs in school, can pray in school. But there's also no question that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion that the 14th Amendment has now interpreted to the states and through selective incorporation to say that schools shall not do that. So the big thing in the Engel decision where there's this state-sponsored prayer that teachers are reading is that phrase state-sponsored or what we might talk about as the imprimatur of the school, which is a fun word to say and consider. And then in Abington, it was the notion of devotional Bible reading in schools. So certainly if you were taking an AP art history class, it would be incredibly appropriate if your teacher were showing you a painting that was bought and paid for by a church depicting biblical imagery to say, let's read this passage from the Bible so that you can better understand this painting. That does not violate Abington because that's not devotional. It's educational in that context. So context is everything with Supreme Court cases. And both Engel and Abington do a really nice job underscoring that. What carries that imprimatur of the school or what makes something devotional versus not, which gives you a lens through which to view other freedom of religion cases and other freedom of religion circumstances. Terrific. So uh, we've obviously showcased some of the C-SPAN resources we have, but are there other tools or materials that you and uh, Shoshana are using uh, to support your students through the review process? Sure. So we tend to say to like to approach things through play, but we link to a lot of it through the C-SPAN resources. So I'm a big fan of BlueKit, which I'm sure a number of our listeners out there have found. But if you have not, it is a great way of gamifying your review. So you can take any Quizlet out there and populate it into BlueKit in about 30 seconds and 10 clicks. And it will create different games and you can choose the games and it will review the content with you. But on our, for instance, C-SPAN classroom, vocabulary review, there are already blue kits created that are aggregated by unit. So whatever unit's vocab you're kind of concerned about, you can already, there's a pre-made blue kit and a free pay free play Kahoot that are out there for you. Kahoot obviously in free play or any other form is great. But also grab a friend and review together. So on both the key cases and the key documents, 
classroom lessons. There are 10 different versions of gameplay and game cards with those key documents. So you can set up in a hang time with your friends inside or outside, depending on your comfort level. There's even options for virtual play where you can set up a FaceTime with your friends if you can't arrange time in the reels to be together and play through the documents. So make it fun. There's so much to review. And there are plenty of other resources out there. Uh, College Board obviously puts some out for you. But I tend to find that C-SPAN Classroom has everything we need with maybe a little bit of gamifying and fun in terms of how to actually apply them. As a reminder to all of our listeners, we'll make sure to um, post any links that we've referenced throughout this podcast on our featured resources page, as well as some of those resources that you just mentioned that help to gamify some of these reviews. But looking ahead to the actual Cram for the Exam program, um, what else can students and teachers expect? Uh, for instance, um, I know students will be able to call in and text their questions and their shout-outs for their schools live during the program, and I'll also be live tweeting through uh, the different questions that are asked and recommendations that you share about the different resources. But what questions do your students typically ask? What kind of content are you going to cover in the program? Sure. So mostly we want this to be student-driven. It's not for us. We're not taking the exam. We want it to be useful and helpful to you. So what things have come up in your studying that you said, ooh, I not sure. Maybe I wasn't there that day, or maybe I was sick that day, or maybe I just missed that in the reading, and I don't know what that is. So we also you know, don't want you necessarily to be too much filling up your teacher's inbox over the weekend, although I'm sure they're very happy to hear from you. But if you, if you have a question, you're probably not the only person in the country who does. So pop on in and ask it and let us clarify that concept for you. I think what my students generally want to know is, what else do I need to do? Because hopefully by April 30th, you've done a fair amount of studying and reviewing, and now you're facing that last 48-hour crunch. So we really want to talk about how can you use your time to the best advantage in that last 48 hours? What Again, what are those little concepts that have emerged in your review that you really could use one more look at? But also, what are some strategic approaches maybe you can take to better leverage what you know? So one of the things my students get tired of hearing me say, but I repeat a lot because it's true, is being a good test strategist is as important as knowing the information. So we want to talk about and some strategic elements that you can infuse into your approach to attacking the exam so that it is a more successful showcase of what you do know. And I always love hearing about great teachers and great student relationships out there. So I'm really looking forward to the shout outs as well. Well, and having had experience, you said teaching for 14 years, AP government, um, talking about that 48-hour crunch, right, that getting down to the nitty-gritty right before the exam, do you have any recommendations to teachers about how they might be able to use this cram for the exam program or the past programs that we already have recordings of available? Sure, absolutely. So one of the advantages of everything that's ever been on C-SPAN, of course, is that it is freely and easily accessible in your archives. So you can watch any of the past Cram for the Exam programs as well as ours. And I know you said it's going to be made available even later that day for anyone that can't quite catch it live or forgets to set their TiVo. So it'll be both online and in podcast form. Is that right? Later that day. So again, there's lots of different ways to do it. You can gamify it. You can pop up just the question and then have your students race to see who can answer it. And obviously, if you're not hosting a weekend review session, you can do that via Remind. You can have them tweet at you so that everybody sees it. You can set up a Google Doc and have students jump in and contribute to that. Or you can do a watch party if you're like me and from the West Coast and like Shoshana and that's a very early wake-up call for you and you're not a morning person. You can do a watch party in your classroom later that day or a virtual watch party 
to engage together with the current content. Also, you can divide and conquer it. So you, we, we've done that before where you have students break up different segments of the program and this group of students is listening to this 15 minutes and this group's listening to this 15 minutes and then coming back for a collective share out. What did you hear? What did it remind you that you know or that you don't know? And then you can never go wrong with the vocab. In so many ways, AP Gov is a really big vocabulary test. So what you can do to drive the vocab, to review key terms, and to make yourself conversant with them and to think about what those terms look like, not just in definition, but in practice is to the good. Fantastic. So uh, once again, the Cram for the Exam program will be broadcast live on Saturday, April 30th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And as soon as the hour-long program has finished airing at 10 a.m., we'll be posting that video on our C-SPAN Classroom website at cspan.org slash classroom. We'll also be making the program available, as Sunshine just said, we'll be making it available as an audio podcast. So if you receive our weekly emails uh, that we send from C-SPAN Classroom, we'll be sending that link out to both the video and the audio podcast by midday on Saturday, April 30th, so that you and your students can obviously use it to review any time you like ahead of the exam on Monday. We certainly heard some ideas from uh, Sunshine just then, but we've also heard from teachers in the past that they'll have virtual or in-class watch parties, either live as the program airs, or they'll review it later in the day um, after we have the streaming links available. Uh, it's certainly early in the morning on the West Coast when it's airing live, so maybe something for you to consider there with your students. Additionally, in the lead-up to the live program, uh, you may also want to consider assigning students into groups, either in class or in breakout rooms online, and you can have them review previous cram for the exam programs they can record the questions and answers and then uh, test their classmates. We'd like to thank you once again for tuning in to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. As a reminder, C-SPAN will host our annual live call-in AP U.S. Government Cram for the Exam program on Saturday, April 30th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be live tweeting throughout the program with the key questions from students and instructional resources that you can send to your students so that they can, quote, cram for the exam in their final weekend of review. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Classroom. Sunshine, I want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, all of those resources that we shared and discussed today, you can find those on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. And remember, if you'd like to connect with our team, please email us anytime at educate at cspan.org. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next time.